0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Hi, creative. It's Lauren here. Before we get into the show, I just want to tell you that my single "Pretty Little Boy" is out now. It's a bop, and I think you're gonna love it. So definitely check it out at the link in the show notes or by searching "Pretty Little Boy" Lauren Lagrasso wherever you get your music. Also, as always, if you like the show, remember to rate, review, and follow it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share it with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag at Unleash Your Inner Creative at Lauren Lagrasso and at We Can't Find Emily, and we will repost to share our gratitude. Okay, now let's get to the creative chat. Relationships are a mixed bag of questions. If you're in a partnership, you might be wondering what makes a relationship work long term. How are we supposed to make our sex life and intimacy satisfying for the rest of our lives? Whereas if you're single, you might be or probably are wondering, where did all these F-boys come from and why do I keep falling for them? But as always, with pretty much everything in life, it starts with you. And the most important question you can ask is, would I date me? How can I increase my own self-love so I can give it to someone else? Today's guest will take us through the process of understanding ourselves, our partners, or our potential partners, and how we can set up our love life for success. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, actor, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat of your life, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, and spirituality. Before we get into today's guest, I also just want to say thank you and congratulations to you, my beautiful creative listener, because the show this past week won a wonderful award, a W3 award for best host, which is so exciting. So thank you for your support and for making the show something that you come back to week after week. As always, with anything that comes to the show, I share the victory with you. And of course, with my darling producer, Emily. So, okay, now to the guest. Today's guest is Dr. Viviana Coles. And if you're a fan of Lifetime's hit reality show, Married at First Sight, you probably already know her as their featured marriage expert and she really is an expert. Dr. Coles is president and lead psychotherapist at Houston Relationship Therapy, president at the National Sex Institute, has a doctorate in marriage and family therapy, and exclusively focuses on working with couples and individuals experiencing emotional and physical intimacy issues. I wanted to have Dr. Viviana on the show for a couple of reasons. One, she's taken a very creative journey down a very traditional path. Knowing full well she only wanted to work for herself, she became an entrepreneur right off the bat, became an expert on a TV show, recently authored a book called The Four Intimacy Styles, and she's done even so much more than that. She's made opportunities happen for herself. So not only are you going to get tools for better, long-lasting intimacy today, but also all of you entrepreneurs and authors out there are going to get some great advice on how to network, take control of your creative property, and execute your ideas. Can't wait for you to hear from her. Now here she is, Dr. Viviana Coles. Dr. Viviana, I'm so excited and honored to have you here on Unleash Your Inner
1: Creative. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Lauren. I'm excited to finally be on your show.
0: I know. So fun. Um, I'm a fan of yours. Been watching you for years. We have a mutual friend in Paria. And I just, I love your career because you've taken what, you know, we would think of as a more quote unquote traditional path and really approached it like an artist. And I think that's so cool. And I'm wondering, was that always your intent when you were first studying psychology and and going into this, you know, realm of being a clinician, what was your goal when you started?
1: Well, I knew I wanted to have a private practice so that I could have flexibility. I I knew I wanted to be a business owner, mainly because I knew I wanted to have a family and uh, wanted to have the flexibility of being able to work whenever, however, or not work whenever and however. And so I, I will say that was always the driving force was to make sure that I went into private practice. Now, what I was going to do in private practice quickly narrowed down to couples and and family therapy. And then that just because of the type of clients that were finding me and word of mouth slowly became like, all couples and all individuals who are experiencing relationship issues and more specifically, emotional and physical intimacy issues. So Mm. I say that it happened gradually. I would probably say the first three to five years of my practice, I just kind of narrowed down and filtered down into that niche. And I love it. Um, But no, I would have never guessed that I would have such a variety as far as in my professional life and personal life as well. But I, I just thought, okay, well, I'll have an office and I'll be able to work from there and I'll see clients. And, you know, while the kids are at school, whenever I do have kids, you know, <laughs> I'll be at work and man, it has just skyrocketed, blown up in my eyes to something that is just amazing and rewarding.
0: Yeah. It, it really is amazing what you've done. I'm curious, cause you said you quickly started Whittling it down, where you were like seeing couples and then it went more and more specific within that. How did it start getting narrow? Like, there's a lot of people who maybe know what they want to do, but they don't have that like clear vision of exactly how it's going to be. How did you start deducing that, like, oh, couples is the thing I'm really good at? And like relationships are the thing that really make me light up.
1: That's a good point because there's probably a lot of people out there who are now studying to become relationship therapists or to becoming therapists who don't really know how they're going to work with couples because anyone who tells you otherwise is going to lie. (laughs) Seeing couples when you first start is so frustrating. It is like beyond they're annoying. (laughs) (laughs) They talk over each other. They talk over you. They don't let each other speak. And you know, when you're first starting out and you're in training and you're in graduate school and you're starting to see clients, you haven't really found your voice. And if you have, it's probably not a good thing because then you're just going to like have this one style forever, whether it works for your client or not. So basically you start off kind of this clean slate and you're able to kind of figure out, okay, well, what questions tend to elicit the answers that I'm looking for? Do I need to be very direct? Mm. What is my physical, like, space need to look like in order to work with clients? How do I need to use my body language to make sure that people know who's trying to talk? I mean, there's a lot to it, but at first I was like, I don't want to see couples. (laughs) They are so, I would come home with headaches and I'm like, oh my gosh, they just fight over each other. We didn't get anything accomplished. You know, it takes months and years to become a therapist. And then it takes years of experience and hours and hours of working with clients to really be helpful. And I was fortunate enough, again, to go straight into private practice. I never really wanted to work for anyone else, which continues to this day. And I just realized, okay, as long as it's on my terms and I'm respectful, they'll respect me, we'll get the work done. And then trust starts to build to where they know that I'm not trying to cut them off. They know that I'm wanting them to be heard. They know that I'm trying to help. And before you know it, it just all kind of falls into place.
0: There's so much I want to ask you from what you just said. Um, one thing was, you said like they're annoying. There's literally times in my therapy session where I'll be like to my therapist, Jessica, I'm like, am I being annoying right now?
1: No, chances are you're not. Most clients are not very annoying. Maybe therapists are, but most clients are not annoying. It's, (laughs) it's the feeling like you're not getting anywhere because Ah. they're just like going at it. And if you don't really have control over the space, that will happen. And before you know it, the hour's over and you're like, okay, well, I guess I'll see you next week. And then if you're first starting out, you're like, well, will they ever even come back? <laughs> so that's the kind of annoying I'm talking about. I,
0: I hear you. That makes sense. I'm curious because you're so real and you're such like, just like a real human, like keeps it real talks. Normally you're not like trying to talk above somebody. How, how do you deal with like being a human while being a therapist? Like I know they teach you that in school, but yeah. I've always been curious about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I will say the training has a lot to do with it. I went to a phenomenal marriage and family therapy program out in Nova Southeastern university in Florida. I did my master's there. I did my doctorate there and After my master's, I don't know how some people only do their master's. Obviously, there's that's the terminal degree. That's the degree you must have in order to sit for licensure and get licensed. But after my two years master's program, I did not feel fully confident Mm. to like hang up, you know, (laughs) the sign that says, "Okay, Dr. Viviana Coles or at that time, Viviana Coles. But. I knew I needed to do more and my Mm. family has always been very supportive and they always encouraged me to go for the highest degree possible in order to, to really prove to people that I know what I'm talking about. And fortunately, after I was done with my doctorate, I did know what I was talking about. Uh, And then certainly after seeing hours and hours, thousands of hours of clients in order to become licensed, I was definitely ready, but you don't really know what you're doing until you see like the hardest cases and you reach out for supervision and you reach out for consultation and then you come back and you're able to like impart that information.
0: Wow. That's good. So basically the training really, really helps and gives you like a foundation to go to when something is like, what the hell was that?
1: (laughs) Well, exactly. And I think that for a lot of people, they feel like, it's intuitive. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just know how to talk to people. Well, talking to someone, talking to a friend, you know, we were chatting before we went live, um, <laughs> you know, that's different than therapy. And a lot of people don't realize that the way that I speak to my clients, the way that I speak to the couples on Married Up for Sight, the way that I speak to people who are asking for help online, that is different than how I talk to a friend who needs help. Mm or how i talk when i'm going through something it's very different and and the main thing that's different and that the training reminds you of constantly is it's not about you it's not about how you handle things it's getting them to a solution in the way that works best for them mm. what's their wavelength and what what kind of interventions are going to work for them what kind of questions do you need to ask you know a lot of people will say that they're you know coaches or or things like that without really having any credentials. Certainly you can't do that if you're a therapist because you have to be licensed, but, you know, people will just say I I'm a life coach or I coach people with relationships, even though they really haven't had the formal training. And while they I'm sure like a lot of us do have skills with talking to people and, and have empathy, but that's not the same as really being able to help somebody focus on, situation that will work for them.
0: Right. And something you also mentioned was that you went directly into private practice, which I think is incredible. Most people You know, they'll go work for someone for a while, then they'll try to like dip their toes, side hustle in the entrepreneurial pool, and then fully dive in. Yeah. If somebody's looking to go into whatever their version of private practice is, maybe they've got an Etsy shop and they want to start like selling art full time. What's some advice you could offer them as somebody who has been an entrepreneur your full career on how to take the plunge and do it in a way that is safe and smart while still taking the risk they need to? Yeah.
1: First of all, just get started (laughs) because the sooner you get started, the more life and and work experience you're going to have. So you're going to grow in that first year versus hemming and hawing and working for somebody else and making somebody else money. Uh, Might as well just get started and learn as you go. The business side is not something that most therapists get any training in. That's something that you have to seek for yourself. So having a mentor, having a business coach, I've had one for a very long time. Um, is really helpful because it's one thing to say I have this great idea. It's another thing to execute it. I also think it's always very important to keep your eyes open for people, whether they're in your field or not. I mean, people who are good at what they do, because chances are you're going to have to call on them for help at some point, whether it's you know building a business, building a website marketing. I mean, there's so much that goes into being an entrepreneur. The legal side of it is huge. Uh. Finding someone who knows the legal and ethical ramifications of everything that you do is very important, especially if you're working with a license.
0: Yeah, that's such great advice. And how did you go about finding a business coach? Did you literally just Google business coach? Did you go to referral? Where should people look for that?
1: Networking. I went to at uh, my old high school, and went to a speaking engagement there. It was a social, like business networking lunch. And I shared what I did, and people shared what they did. And there was another alumna there who said she's a business coach. And she asked a question at the time that was, it just, at the time, it spoke to me so perfectly that it compelled me to go talk to her right after it was over. And I said, Oh my gosh, like you asked a question. She's like, oh, which one? And I told her it. And then she said, oh my gosh, okay, why did that one speak to you? And then I told her and it just went back and forth. And so we've been working together ever since. And she continues to ask me the right questions. Like this past week, she was asking, "Hey, you need to ask yourself, do you need to be doing this? Or is there someone else who can do it for you? Is there someone else who would be better suited to do this task or whatever it is? But she just continues, her name is Juliana Ashley and she continues to do so much to help wrangle me. And like, I always tell her, I'm like, I have a bunch of thoughts coming around. I need you to help me focus in this hour. And she gets it done, it's amazing. That's such great advice for
0: creatives though because I feel like a lot of times the reason we don't go toward the business or doing the project isn't because we don't have the ideas or even the passion and drive. It's because we can't organize our thoughts appropriately and figure out a plan. So that could be the key for a lot of people. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah. And I I just think business coaches, especially if you're an executive, she's an executive business coach. It helps you to get things done faster because I could be working on a project for over the course of a year on my own. But if I work with someone else who helps me to really prioritize and understand like, okay, what's next and why, why do you need to stop doing this in order to start doing this? All of that can save you so much time and of course in turn save you a lot of money.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing I think we forget. It's like, yes, maybe it's a big investment up front, but you're saving yourself thousands on the back end.
1: Absolutely. And you know, some some people will charge a, a lot, some people will charge per hour, some people, you know, there's all sorts of different pay scales, but there is somebody out there that will work with you. And finding somebody through somebody, just like with dating, usually tends to work out best.
0: That is so true. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to tell you my little situation right now. Tell you in a little bit
1: teaser, (laughs) Um,
0: but okay. Let's get back to your path. So you're doing the private practice thing. You're doing some speaking. You've got this business coach. How does this transition into being one of the experts on married at first sight, writing books, this whole creative path that you're on now?
1: It's so interesting that you call it a creative path because I really have never considered myself a creative. Yeah. I just, I haven't, I don't know why. Or I got news for you, baby. You are. (laughs) I kind of like that. Um, Yeah, it is. You're right. It definitely is a a way of expressing my creativity. I think the way that I got to this is by saying yes. I say yes to a lot of opportunities and that includes social uh, opportunities as well as media opportunities. And a confidence that I got from my upbringing, both my education and with my family, really gave me a a leg up to say, yes, when somebody says, do you want to be on the show tomorrow? And yes, most people I have found, because I mentor a lot of people and consult with a lot of people who are trying to kind of figure out how they can get more public presence. I just said yes, because I I knew, again, that it's through experience that we really learn and hone our skills. So I wanted to make sure that if somebody calls me or emails me for a media opportunity to this day, of course, depending on availability and whether it's a good fit, I try to say yes, because you never know what's going to come of it. You never know what skills I'm going to learn, and you never know what other people are going to learn and whose whose hands and whose eyes it's going to get into.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So was it from doing all these different media experiences and speaking publicly that you were found and then kind of vetted
1: and got to do Married at First Sight? Actually, it's funny you say that because it wasn't that I was found. I actually looked for Kinetic Content, who is the production company behind a bunch of hit reality shows, especially having to do with love and relationships. I had been um, contacted and working with other production companies for two years prior to connecting with Kinetic Content. And I sent an email along with my curriculum vitae that showed, hey, I actually know what I'm talking about. I'm not just somebody off the streets. And so finally, after two years, when it wasn't really a priority, but it was always on my mind because it was always a matter of like, when will I hear back? If anything happens, when will it happen? So I started really considering the idea of being on TV. And then finally I said, you know what? I'm going to seek out, A production company that already has some great programming that I would want to be a part of. Not because I think that they would take me on to those, but because they probably have new projects that maybe do have openings. And I found them on LinkedIn. I sent them the same information I sent the others, and they contacted me the next day. But it was not for another two years that an opening came up on the hit show Married at First Sight. And when that happened, I was right at the top. I met with them twice in person. This was obviously pre-pandemic and it's been amazing ever since.
0: Oh my gosh, Dr. Viviana, you're such a badass. I love that you reached out on LinkedIn, first of all. That's just such a great example of creating your own destiny and how if we don't ask, we never know. And sometimes you think like, I'm sure there were points in that actually four-year period, right? Where you're like, is this ever going to happen? I don't know. But maintaining the faith, maintaining the hope, probably you were like pinging them and reminding them of who you were and staying in touch, you know? And um, it's so easy when you're in that long journey to think this is over for me, but really it hadn't even begun.
1: That's true. But I will also tell you and your listeners that you have to be okay with the life that you're living. You don't need to be like putting anything on hold. I continued everything that I was doing as is, because I knew that, again, I was only going to have more on my curriculum vitae. I was only going to have more to add to my real but if I was holding out or if I wasn't continuing my business, you know, TV is really hard to get into. It doesn't happen this way for a lot of people. And it take it could take 10 more years for a lot of people. So I, I just wouldn't want anyone to think, OK, you start emailing and all of a sudden it's going to happen. No, continue to get better at what you do. Continue to get media training. Continue to build up your resume so that you truly can say that you are what you're putting out there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just so important for business owners, creatives of all sorts to have many different eggs in our basket, right? Because if one, you know, falls out, you still got a bunch of other eggs you can crack and make an omelet or an eggs Benedict out of. I'm taking the the metaphor too far, but you get what I'm saying.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. I think it's so important to have a variety of income streams that's a really big deal to me it always has been being a part of a tv show you never know when that's going to be taken away from you when it's going to be canceled or whatever and you know again i'm so fortunate that kinetic content has continued to have such safe ways to be able to continue working during all of this but who who knows most businesses can't do that so you do have to continue to diversify so that you're not putting all of your eggs in one basket. And that can be something that, again, a business coach can help you to talk through and figure out, well, how else can we make money? Cause that's, I mean, truly that's what this is all about is making sure that you're happily helping others while you make money.
0: Right. I mean, and you just spoke about a lot of uncertainty. I think when you do choose a career path, that isn't just a typical nine to five, even then there i would argue that there's a good amount of uncertainty and fear but when you choose this more entrepreneurial path there's certainly a lot of uncertainty and it's easy to feel anxiety in those moments and start spinning in those moments first of all have you experienced that at all and and what would be your advice for somebody who is in the anxiety of not knowing how can they calm themselves and focus on putting one foot in front of the other
1: as far as having experienced financial anxiety. I have had really great examples in my family, my parents. I got a lot of great messages about making sure to learn how to save early on. Was I great at it in college? No, no, I wasn't. (laughs) But did I at least know about the importance of it? Yes. And then with business, I, I always made sure, especially starting your own business, that my initial investment wasn't something that I could not literally afford to lose, like don't spend money that would make you destitute if you don't make it back. You know, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the book, because as a self-published person, this is all on me. The the initial investment was something that, you know, I had to really determine, okay, wait, can I truly afford to do this? So It's kind of like when they talk about giving somebody a loan, (laughs) don't loan somebody money if you truly expect to get it back because you might not, and you can't make yourself go broke because of it.
0: Yeah. And I I feel the same way about like doing favors and being nice to people. Like if you're doing it because you're expecting them to like do something nice back for you right away, or even like, thank you so much. Then don't do it. Do it only if you really want to do it because you may not get that. Absolutely. So, okay, let's definitely transition into some of this relationship stuff. First of all, I have to say like before I really knew Paria and like watched the show, I remember thinking like, oh, married at first date, such a crazy idea. Like why would anyone do it? But after being in the dating scene for a while out in LA and experiencing some of the things I experienced. I'm like, I think this is the smartest thing of all time. It's so brilliant. Sign me up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, God, I would love to have some experts vet these people so that I don't just have to throw myself to the wolves. Like I always would say, why do you need two to three references to go on a job interview, but none to go on a date?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Well, and what's interesting is that there's a whole team that helps to vet the people that we're working with. I'm not a background specialist. I'm not an employment verification specialist. I don't do um, psychological testing on the regular. So there's just a whole team that is truly dedicated to trying to find the most appropriate people, the most um, ready, prepared people to do this. But at the core of it, who can ever really be ready to be married at first sight? Yeah. How do you prepare for that? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I told Pari, I'm like, I would do it if it was like living together at first sight. The the married thing scares me, but I do get it. And I actually think it's quite brilliant. And obviously I've interviewed a bunch of people on the show. I know it's worked for so many, so many beautiful families you've helped create. So it's incredible. I'm curious though, like when you first heard of it, what was your gut reaction? <sighs>
1: Well, because I'm a therapist, I was very intrigued with the whole thing. I thought, "Really? Okay, marriage. Wow. Okay, but marriage is such a big deal. Okay, how do you how do you do this?" I was one of those people who was skeptical of the experts because I thought, uh. "What if it doesn't work out? Aren't they scared of their reputation and this and that?" And but then I realized, you know, their expertise wasn't something different than private practice, so I thought, "Okay, that makes sense." You know, like Dr. Pepper is an amazing sociologist, and she knows a lot about sexuality. And then we have Pastor Cal, who comes from a very Christian-based way of looking at relationships. There's nothing that people can criticize them on because that's their expertise, right? But then you have a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified sex therapist as myself. And I thought, well, I don't know what people are going to think. A lot of people don't even know what a licensed marriage and family therapist is and how we're different than psychologists or how we're different than professional counselors and and all of that. And certainly a certified sex therapist, people know even less of. So I was kind of worried that people would be like, what is she going to be doing with these couples? (laughs) But I did worry about how it would affect my private practice. You know, my client list was so full Mm -hmm. that I thought okay, I certainly don't want to lose any of them because of this. So I didn't even tell my clients that I was on the show until I I still don't even tell them I'm on the show. Um, Not that they don't know. I mean, some of them have been like, "Um, hello, (laughs) I just saw you last night, (laughs) but I don't tell people because it is very different than the work that I do in the sense that, you know, we have ongoing relationships. I'm in their actual therapist. I know the ins and outs of everything so much as they've told me. And I can surmise a lot with the couples that I'm working with on the show. It's like, there's a mission. They have an issue and I'm going in, I get two to three hours with them, both individually and separately. And I need to just kind of quickly address what's happening. And then a couple of weeks later, another expert will go in and address it. And if, of course, we have like FaceTimes in between and we're able to do some video chats with them whenever they need, or even just phone calls, not everything gets Recorded. That's a lot of work. Um, but it's not the same. Like it's it's very, it's much more surface work. Right. Which I really like because again, it's variety and it makes me have to sharpen up skills of like, I, I feel like I'm like on a again, it feels like I'm on a mission. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, you're getting to flex your creative little muscles there. And it's it's so interesting because you have this incredible book out, the four intimacy styles. And, you know, I'm putting out a song uh, a week from today because we're recording a Monday, the 27th. I'm putting out a song on the 4th called Pretty Little Boy. And it's about F boys, fuck boys. And it's coming out on National Fuck Boy Day. And it's interesting because, you know, I watched a season of Married at First Sight with Beth. And I'm blanking on the guy's name, probably because I put it out of my head because he
1: was triggering. I hate that I know exactly (laughs) who you're talking about.
0: Why is a fuck boy I'm married at first sight? Yeah, I think you're thinking of Matt. Sorry, Matt. Sorry, Matt. No offense, but you know it's true. Um, like, okay. He's going to go hella at an IG model, so he's fine. He's going to be fine. He's thriving in his own world. Um, okay. Why do people who are emotionally unavailable try to enter relationships? Let's just start there. Okay.
1: Okay. So there's always the... Possibility that people don't have the self awareness that they should have entering a relationship. And for a lot of people, it takes the mirror of being with a partner to even see themselves and who they are. Mm. When you're dating, you get to pick and choose the messages from the people you're dating, whether it's a one time date or five months or whatever. You get to pick and choose the messages that fit for you and for your perspective. And some people are very picky and leave a lot of messages out there. It's like, oh, no, I'm not the problem. You're the problem. And they just move on to the next and move on to the next and move on to the next. They don't take any of that feedback and actually do something that might help them become more prepared and better capable of being in a relationship. That's not the case when you see a therapist, we don't let those things slide. So you're getting feedback that and and we know, you know, you're paying us to, to talk. So you're, you're actually listening, but that doesn't happen for a lot of people. They don't seek out advice from any sort of expert or, or therapist or counselor or coach. And it hurts to get some of this feedback. And when something hurts, we try to avoid it. And it just kind of, starts to become like, uh, anything negative, I'm not gonna take it on as reality because everybody else has issues except for me. So as a therapist, I have to say, some people just don't have the self-awareness. The other option <laughs> is that some people thrive on drama and, and thrive on the sexual high. I mean, they, they take the release part of the four intimacy styles, they take that style and and that's all they experience, and all they want to do is have that sexual like high and euphoric feeling, and they don't care what what it takes to get there and what it takes to you know it's almost like a hit it and quit it kind of thing.
0: So if someone were listening and said, "Okay, well you know I guess that kind of sounds like me," what would your advice to them be on how to start to own it more? and open up to their emotions so they can be in relationship with someone authentically. Yeah.
1: So number one is if you are looking for that release, if that's really all that you need, you have plenty of other things that are fulfilling your life. You don't need to be in a relationship. You just want someone to help you with the sex stuff and and with the kind of that physiological release. Just be honest about it because there are a lot of other people who are willing to do the same thing and get the same thing from you. You don't need to tap into a different pool of people. There are lots of people who want the same thing. go out and find them but you have to be honest. For the people who don't realize that that's kind of what they're after, you need to listen to stuff like this and ask yourself the question like what are all the signs that I'm moving towards being an F boy versus moving towards being You know, the husband material. And if you find that there's barely anything in the husband material chart and that upsets you and and it's moving you away from your goals, then you need to get help to talk about it and figure out what you can do to get a lot more on this side.
0: Right. And on the other hand, let's say you're a person who, you know, a lot of people in LA complain about dating in LA. I've had some funny stories, but I ultimately think like, you know, weird things happen everywhere. And if you're always complaining about something, maybe examine yourself. So if you are the kind of person who has found yourself continually in these kind of situationships or relationships where you had somebody who maybe wasn't as emotionally available as you are, or as you wanted them to be, how can you start working on yourself to really form a platform of self-love and draw that kind of love into you?
1: So a question that I tend to ask my clients to ask themselves is, would you want you? If you can give me a ton of reasons why you are a desirable partner, why you deserve to find somebody who will stand by you forever, and and you're very clear on that, then you're on your way. And then we need to examine what barriers are up to finding that person. But a lot of people can't honestly say that they would want to be with themselves because of whatever reason, whether it's finances, health, attitude, mood, where they live, you know, they might feel like I, I have enough with me and my two dogs. Like I can't handle anybody else. Those are barriers that they may not realize You know, and a lot of people have to also think maybe you really do want to be single forever. Maybe you want to find love, but it's through companionship. It's through friendship. It's through familial love. It's strengthening the bonds of your family. Not everybody has to want to be coupled up, but I think that's fewer and farther between than the people who actually do want to be partnered up and have a monogamous relationship forever, as long as it's satisfying. (laughs)
0: Forever, as long as it's satisfying. That's what we should say in our
1: vows. (laughs) Meaning I know that that's what they want. They want the forever. (laughs) If it's satisfying, they don't want the forever. If it's not
0: right. Yeah. And I think that to your point, like it's all work. And the interesting thing is, you know, like when you start working on yourself, if you're frustrated in your relationship or you're frustrated in the dating scene that you're encountering, it's weird how, when you start doing those things, it starts to change. Like You know, someone said that to me, would you want to marry yourself back in the spring? And I was pretty miserable at the time. And, you know, I think I'm a nice person and I'm a cool person. But at that time, my answer was honestly, no, I definitely wouldn't want to marry myself, not the way things are right now. Mm -hmm. And so then I started being like, okay, well, what kind of partner do I want? And I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast, but I think it's really important to repeat. I literally, um, would say, what would I want my partner to do right now? And I'm like, Oh, I wish my partner would bring me coffee in bed. So I bring myself coffee in bed. I love that. And then I'd be like, what would I want my partner to do right now? I'm like, I'm feeling upset. What would I want them to say to me? I would literally hug myself and tell myself everything's going to be okay. You're doing great. I believe in you. And I, I said the little like teaser and and I'm not official yet with this person, but like, I've been seeing someone for the last month and it's like, the most peace I've ever had mm-hmm. in any sort of partnership. And I've never felt simultaneously safe and excited. And I just didn't know it could be this easy. And the other day we were literally sitting on the couch. I was stressed. He had his arm around me and he verbatim said, everything's going to be okay. Oh my God. Like basically the exact thing I said to myself when I was hugging myself on the couch, I was, everything's going to be okay. I believe in you. You're going to get through this. Wow. So what you're saying works and you can be that literal. And I don't know, again, I don't know what will happen with this guy. I'm like, always afraid I'm going to jinx it, (laughs) but, uh, but I don't think I can jinx this one. I think it's just like when something's easy, sometimes you can trust that. Like it doesn't have to be hard. And I thought love always had to be hard and it doesn't.
1: I love that because I think a lot of times we, we talk about, you know, relationships just being so hard Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel hard when you feel like you're working and it's an investment in something that you really want. So I guess a lot of people just need, we have to define what hard is and what's too hard and what's too much work. Because I see arguments, I see differences of opinion, I see sleepless nights, I see some anxiety at times. I feel like all of that is an investment in the growth because you're, you're trying to build a life with another person who is completely separate and different than you are. Of course, it's going to be difficult at times. Should it be difficult all the time? Probably not. I mean, unless you're a very difficult person and you know you thrive on drama or you thrive, you know, you live in trauma. Like, there's just. I, I think if somebody says, "Gosh, my past five relationships were just so difficult." Like you said, Lauren, I think that, you know, they're the common denominator. Well, how does that happen? Are you just a very stressed out person? Do you bring a lot of negativity? Do you bring complex? you know, a lot of people like the complexity of being in an argument with somebody? Mm -hmm. Like, like they like it. It it like activates parts of their brain.
0: Well, yeah, then maybe go be a lawyer. Right. (laughs) I just think like, maybe don't bring it because I feel like I used to be like that. And I had to get honest with myself that I was exhibiting a lot of characteristics of codependent people. Like, I don't know exactly where it came from, Mm -hmm. but I felt like I needed to fix people. And I got a high off of being like the one that always knew the right thing to say and the right thing to do. And like the leader in the relationship rather than a balanced partnership. So I had to get honest with myself about the fact that I was getting some kind of high and rush off of that and pick up the mirror and stop trying to fix everyone else. And it's, it's hard.
1: I mean, it took me two years. Yeah. Well, you brutal. You were a know-it-all in your relationships. Yeah. And when someone feels like they're getting into a relationship with somebody who knows it all, it keeps this dynamic, you know, this power differential where it's like, well, then what do I bring to this? I'm just a dependent. And, you know, everybody knows that parent-child dynamic is like super unsexy in relationships and it doesn't really evolve into something that is more like intimate and romantic. So I think for a lot of people, they think I have myself figured out. Well, that's great if you have yourself figured out, but just don't assume you have everybody else figured out.
0: Right. And I, I would also argue we never have ourselves figured out because that's why we're here on earth
1: in these bodies, like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just bumping up against all this pain. <laughs> well, and you think you, you know, through introspection and, and through therapy, you think, well, gosh, I've really learned so much about myself. And yes, you're absolutely right. You can't actually know everything about yourself because we don't live in tiny communities with no X factors anywhere and we don't all live in an experiment, right? We don't all live in a controlled experiment, even with an experiment like Married at First Sight. You know, we call it an experiment because nobody really knows. We have a hypothesis. We have our theories. We have certain factors that we feel like are controlled. And then there are a lot of experimental factors like, are they going to look at each other? Are they going to find that they find each other attractive? Are they going to be respectful. Are they going to, I mean, there's just so many things that we cannot factor for. So that's why it's called an experiment.
0: No. Yeah. And anytime you're encountering a new element, a new part of you can potentially come out. Another thing I started doing with dating, which is just kind of interesting was I'd ask myself like, how much Lauren am I being right now? So I'd literally think of a percentage in my head. And there was a guy I was seeing like back in the spring and it was like, 50% 55% Lauren. I'm like, this is way too, too little Lauren. Like I can't, I can't really be in a relationship with this guy. If I can only bring out like just a smidgen more than half of myself. So I think that's an interesting thing, but I do want to transition into your book because it's so brilliant. I took
1: the quiz. Speaking of percentages, what were yours? (laughs)
0: Let's see. Let me pull it up. I think I got 80% bonded or bonding. Is that one of them?
1: Bonding. Yes. Yes. Okay. 80% bonding. I made a face. You were looking down and I don't want to be rude. That's a lot. Is that too much? So let me tell And, and for viewers who have no idea what we're talking about. Yes. So, yes. Let's go
0: through them and, and tell them what the things are. Yeah.
1: So the four intimacy styles is this whole kind of way of being in a physically intimate relationship. There's a free quiz you can take online at four intimacystyles.com. And there's a book available. It's available for pre-order right now. And what it does is it helps explain why and how physical intimacy works and doesn't work for long-term relationships. Uh And what I have found through my decades of working with clients at this point is that most people want to be physically intimate with the people that they are emotionally intimate with, namely their romantic partners, forever and when it wanes when there's a disconnect it causes all sorts of problems in otherwise very happy relationships so what i wanted to do was address what it would take like give give some sort of a guide or tool that would help people to understand how to avoid becoming physically disconnected from their partners Um, Mm. I do believe that intimacy is both emotional and physical. And if either one of those is out of whack, it really throws the entire relationship out of whack. And most people don't experience true dissatisfaction in their relationships until the physical disconnect comes. And then that's when they're like, Oh, I am totally unhappy here. So I wanted to address that. Now the four intimacy styles themselves are bonding, release, giving and responsive now a lot of people have been talking about how it's kind of like the five love languages it's different in many ways cuz five love languages is amazing for emotional intimacy i i'm always recommending it to my clients what i'm doing differently one of the ways that this is very different is that i'm going to ask my readers everybody who's in a relationship to try to experience 25% of each of those intimacy styles within any given sexual interaction. So you're going to want to have 25% bonding, 25% release, 25% giving, 25% responsiveness. If you're trying to keep on track for having a healthy, satisfying sex life forever. Oh. If you have too little of one, if you're way too imbalanced in another, then you run the risk of not getting the true, what I call it is rounding out your intimacy style. You want to round out your intimacy style by doing 25% of each in order to really ensure that both you and your partner are getting everything that they need. Okay. So can I ask you like, what does that look like? Yeah. I'm just trying to think of a
0: sex session right now being like, okay, we hit our 25% over here. Now let's move on to the next, like, how does that look in practice? And if you are out of balance, like, you know, I think sometimes with these quizzes, I get really nervous because I'm like, it's asking me to pick the best one. Like there were times when I was on the fence, but I'm like, I don't know. That was my gut. So I just went with it. Well, tell me,
1: so you said you were 80% bonding and what was the rest?
0: release was 13% and giving was 7%. So very little
1: responsiveness. Okay.
0: Well, responsiveness was that the one was like, I hope they never ask me about what I, what I want. It was like, I can, they can ask me and then I don't want to answer anything.
1: Um, a little bit. So basically it's, it's for the people who don't really have sex on the brain, but when their partner wants to, and then they do it, it's nice. It feels good. Oh, okay. It's for people who don't typically experience like this real urge. Uh, they're not like longing for sexual interactions, but when they happen or when their partner brings it up, they want to, Right. not just for themselves, but really for their partner, because they know that it's important and it, it's something that should happen um, according to what their partner needs and to address those needs. Mm. Now, a lot of times it's kind of like when you say, let's go out for sushi. And you're like, oh, I don't really feel like having sushi. But then you go and have sushi and you're like, oh, that was really good. Sushi is very divisive, I know. But it's, it's the, or when you decide, uh, your, your friend is like, let's go to the gym. And you're like, I don't want to go to the gym. But then you go and you feel like amazing afterwards. That same sort of thing. Now, it, a lot of people will say, oh gosh, I never think about sex. And it's such a problem for us. But when my partner brings it up, I go for it. I get into it. It's fun. That's the responsive intimacy style. Ah. So if you have like zero responsive intimacy style, that basically means that you are always initiating sexuality because you don't even leave room for your partner to initiate for you.
0: Mm. I don't think that's true for me but definitely I do have sex on the brain. Like I would actually have been learning about this because I produced Glennon Doyle's podcast. So they've been talking about responsive or I don't remember what the other one was. Um, but like, I definitely, if somebody else initiates will like try to get in the mood because I I think of it's a way of connection, Exactly. but I guess maybe it was the way I was reading it where it felt like it was sounding like it was shutting down the partner, like, or like not sharing. And I feel like, if somebody was sharing like a desire with me and I didn't share back with them, I would have felt like I was
1: leaving them hanging. So what that means for a lot of people, what it looks like is their partner brings up or tries to initiate or just brings up the wanting to want, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but for somebody who's predominantly responsive, it makes them feel awkward because it's not something that's like really comfortable. It's not something that they, they have physiological urges that are, or, or even mental urges that are prompting them to respond, or they don't think about sex very often. So if somebody says, Hey, what turns you on? It's like, I don't know, you know? Um, Right, right. But the reason that I think it's very important to have all four of them, including responsiveness is because if you're going to be in a relationship with someone for a really long time, it is important to be able to dance and have somebody lead and and then be able to follow and then you be able to lead and have somebody follow. Like it's very important to, to show that you want each other and to not always be the one who's like in their face asking and is always ready.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess like I'm in such a different stage right now because I'm in the beginning of a new relationship. So I think that's really skewing some, some of
1: my answers. You have new relationship energy that makes you just tingle all over yeah all the time it I was in a six
0: and a half year relationship before this so I'm sure at the end of that one I would have very different responses but um yeah I I guess I hear people talking about like oh I initiated or she initiated like do people ever initiate at the same time because I feel
1: like that happens to me a lot so I don't know that we can all that we can ever say it's like exactly the same time but you're primed yeah, You look at a sexual encounter and, or you think about a sexual encounter and see it as an investment in your relationship for all the different reasons, for the bonding, the giving, the release, the responsive, you look at it that way. So it's very easy for you to say, to buy in right, and to say, yeah, I'm ready. That's not the case for a lot of people. If you're only in it because you want to give pleasure to your partner, your intimacy style is giving you get off on giving off. That's kind of a phrase from there. That's that's what you love to do. And your partner is also giving and that's their predominant style. And that's all they want is, no, 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 I want to do this. I mean, imagine it's like clashing, mm. you know? So there are some intimacy styles that work well together, that play well together, but truly, if again, if you're, this is for lasting physical intimacy, if you're truly wanting to keep up with and flourish in that way forever, then you need to get good with all of them. So how can we do that? Okay. So (laughs) easiest thing to do is take the quiz online to find out what your percentages are. And then while it's in the book, I will totally plug it. it, (laughs) It's all in here. (laughs) Um, There are Countless ways to show your partner how to incorporate bonding, giving, release, responsiveness. For instance, let's just say um, an example for bonding, because a lot of people think, well, that's what sex should be all about. It should be all about the bonding. Well, bonding emotionally from a sexual experience is wonderful, but there are times where you just want to get off. Right. And and bonding with that person is a side effect. And that needs to be okay too. There needs to be a place for people who are experiencing the delights of human pleasure and that there is a space for that. So there's no poo-pooing on the other styles. Everybody's important in any given way. So let's say you are into bonding though. One of the things that you can do prior to experiencing the sexual act whatever it is that you're planning on doing is to share with your partner why you're so thankful that they're yours and why you even feel close enough to want to be vulnerable with them that just adds a little bit of that bonding and connection to what's about to happen now some people are turned off by that If it's too much, if it's 80% bonding, (laughs) sorry, I feel so shamed right now calling you out Lauren, (laughs) no No shame, no shame. Um, If it's 80% bonding in every interaction, then it can start to feel like, oh, we can't just have a quickie. Like it almost, it kind of starts to limit the play part of it and the fun of it, because most of the time bonding is very, it's very deep. Like it, it's, it's a kind of bearing your soul mm. and not every sexual interaction needs to be that deep, but a lot of people like that. The problem is if your partner isn't very good at at that, then they can feel awkward just from kind of like the coming on strong. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's
0: what you're saying in order to kind of like balance it out more is figure out what you are figure out if there's like areas that are less and then how to kind of experience them and then figuring out what your partner is so that you can kind of mesh your styles together and give each other what you need. Cause that's something I think about a lot too, is like, even with the love languages, like my love language is acts of service. So just because that's mine, that doesn't mean that's what my partner's is. So he may receive love through physical touch. So if I'm like, you know taking out the trash for him and like waxing his car it's not going to mean as much to him as if he just wants me to hold his hand you know so i think it's also like my friend Roxy once said don't treat me the way I, you want to be treated treat me the way i want to be treated which i was like oh that's so brilliant right. so i
1: think and that's that's learnable and that's teachable when it comes to love languages because we can learn how to do each other's love languages without compromising ourselves right. but with sexuality And where, you know, where pleasure comes from, where, I mean, there's so much that goes into our own individual sexuality that to try to say, no, don't be that way, find pleasure in this way, because that's what works for me. That kind of compromise is not going to last and it's going to lead to resentment, which is what people are experiencing in their bedrooms and other places all the time. And a lot of them are coming to see me because of that. So if you're rounding out your intimacy style and you're able to figure out how to balance out those things, you're just much more likely to be able to hit the spot in all sorts of ways, not just the one.
0: Right. And then I have a question too, because I know a lot of people who struggle with this. What do you do when you and your partner have different sex drives? Like this is like a devastating problem for people of all genders. Like how do you advise those people? Like how can they get on more of an even ground together?
1: So it only stands to reason that if you each round out and look at rounding out your intimacy style and work at that, that you're each going to find more desire for sexuality Mm. because you're each going to be getting more out of it. And for a lot of people, the key is to round out your intimacy style. All of a sudden it doesn't feel like, oh man, the last thing on your list. It's okay, chances are I'm going to get something really good out of this. Even if it's, you know, if it's physiological or if it's through giving, then it's, you know, my partner's going to feel really close to me. And there's just so much more that, um, I guess, intensity and desire that can come out of something when you really feel like it's an investment in yourself and in your relationship. Now, the other thing that, I mean, that doesn't account for the physiological issues that might lead to desire to low sexual desire. So what I always advise people to do is if they're experiencing like sexual desire, that really they cannot pinpoint as having anything to do with their relationship or their family stress, you know, like financial stressors, like if they can't come up with any reason why they wouldn't, why they wouldn't want to do that, then chances are it could be hormonal and it's something that they need to check out with their medical professional. But for so many people, that's not what it is. It's usually because they're not feeling like they can have that or that they should have that relationship because of all these external factors that are pulling them away or pushing them away from their partners.
0: Mm. I love it. Um, I'm so excited to read the book. Like I can't wait because... I'll definitely take the tips so I can get even. (laughs) So you
1: can round it out. Got to round round it it out.
0: (laughs) Okay. So Dr. Viviana, I know that you chose to self-publish and I think that's amazing. As an independent podcaster, musician, I know how it is to have literally the whole world on your shoulders. There's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of things that are more challenging, um, but ultimately it's beautiful. But tell me about this choice, why you decided to do it and how it's been.
1: So a couple of things. One is I never even considered that I would write a book before I was 40. Like I always kept thinking, oh, that's something I'll do later, later, later. Um, And so there wasn't like this drive to write. I don't actually enjoy writing very much. I, I did it for so long in my, in my education. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to write something else. But I kept getting people saying like, where's your book? Do you have a book? What are you going to write a book? And I was like, well, I do have a lot of things to talk about. I'm I'm sure at some point I'll come up with something, but the pandemic absolutely was what made me think, okay, I'm writing it now. (laughs) I wrote it from October to May. So October, 2020 to May, 2021. And The reason that I decided to self-publish is I had always known that if I was going to do this, I would self-publish. And I looked into it for the past three years, what it takes to self-publish. Again, I've never liked working for somebody else. It just doesn't work for my spirit. I want to take risks for myself. I don't feel as comfortable taking risks with somebody else's money um, or time. So I wanted it to, to be something that was on me. On top of that, kind of a control freak (laughs) and, and I have a very clear vision. I know what I want. I know how I want it. And I know when I want it. And one of the biggest deterrents, and I'll share the the other about traditional publishing for me was that it's kind of like when production companies were coming to me and nothing was happening, I could be totally ready and have a book ready to go. But if a traditional publisher doesn't notice me, It might never make it out there. Mm. Well, that's not, that doesn't work for me. If I have something to say and I have a great product that I'm proud of, I want to put it out when I want to put it out, not be, not waiting on, you know, when the wind blows. Like that's just not for me. So the time and the control over when it was put out, not only that, but how it's put out. Because again, there are so many different ways that this happens. But for most traditional publishing companies, they have a very clear, Again, path of what they want it to look like, but they could kill it. Oh yeah. like after two years of working on something, most traditionally published books do not come out before two years. And I was like, "No, that doesn't work for me. I want it out now. I'm excited about it now. So being on somebody else's time frame, having somebody else control the content, the cover, you know, all of that just does not sit well with my spirit and my soul. The other part that was a huge deterrent as an entrepreneur was that I don't want to give somebody else 70% or 80% of 70 or 80. Absolutely. Yeah. Most traditionally published authors make cents on their book, like 30 cents a book. I mean, you have to look into it. You have to make, do the research for yourself. Yeah. But self-publishing is now something that is it makes sense. Like most people want to make money for themselves, want to control. Uh, That's the other thing. I don't want to give over the rights to all my stuff. I want to do, I want to own my business. You know, the other thing that kind of prompted me because I kept getting information that was like really steering me towards like, you're right. (laughs) Don't, don't even try to go a different route. This is the way it should be. Taylor Swift is a great example She's now having to redo her catalog, thank you Taylor, because she didn't own her stuff. Yeah. Like I'm not I don't want that. I want to be able to do whatever I want. I want to be able to if I want to add to it, I want to be able to add to it. If I want to do a second, you know, edition, I want to be able to do that. If I if I find something that is helpful that I want to add on or make a change, I want to be able to do that when I want to do it. So yeah, owning the rights to it very important. Making the majority of the profit from it. I wanted that. And then the timing. That's super important.
0: Mm. I think that this is just such a great example because I wouldn't have thought of it with publishing because it seems like books are getting sold all the time and people seem to be making a good living at it. It's like I'm an independent musician because it's so hard as an independent musician to like make a splash within a record label when you don't have a name yet. Mm -hmm. But this is really interesting to me because first of all, had no idea the splits were that bad. I mean, it's almost like exactly the opposite with podcasting where I would think like, you know, you would be getting 70 or 80 and the publisher would be getting 20 or 30.
1: That's insane. No, no. If, if you, unless you're somebody huge, like a James Patterson or, you know, JK Rowling, even she self-published a lot, unless you're somebody huge, There isn't a lot of money in being an author, Mm. certainly not with like one book or two books or, you know, like it's, you have to, you have to do a lot of that in order to make your money. And then what a lot of people don't realize is that the advance, because you hear people say, oh, I got this huge advance or whatever. You don't start making money on top of your advance until the publisher has made that money back. So you're basically paying them back for it. And if you don't, you're never going to make any royalties. And those royalties, again, are like 30 cents a book. So sounds like you made the right choice. I feel I feel really good about it. Um, I, yeah. I continue to feel good about it. And the other thing is that because this is all on my own timeline, if people don't find out about the four intimacy styles until five years down the road, that's okay. Because all of the information leads back to me. All of the income comes back to me. So. I'm fine with that. Of course, I will do whatever I can to get people to know about it. And I'm so fortunate that I have the platform that I do and that I have the expertise of an amazing publicist to help and, and to get the word out too, who really believes in this and believes in what it is that I'm trying to do. That's not something that's always a given when you do have a traditional publishing deal. And I feel like if I, if I succeed, it's on me. If I don't, it's also on me, but I'm going to do whatever I can to get the word out. Cause I truly believe in this being the key to lasting physical intimacy.
0: Mm, well, thank you so much for writing it and for sharing that. And I think that gave everyone who's doing something indie a little bit of pep in their step, knowing that first of all, like the timeline is more open than you think. When you said that thing, if it hits in five years, I think about that with my music, like my music, isn't where I want it to be right now but someone could, or many people, millions could find it in five years. And since I own the masters and I own the publishing, all that comes to me. And then, you know, it's just, we're off to the races. So I think it's very exciting for anyone listening who has done something on their own, that they're feeling like, Oh God, I'm carrying this burden by myself. Think of all the gifts you're also carrying and how they can keep rolling in throughout the years. So thank you for being so inspiring. And for all your knowledge, I, I really appreciate you. And I'm so grateful
1: and do your research. If you're out there and you're an entrepreneur, you're not reinventing the wheel. There are people who have taken that path before you go find that, that club, go find that crew. That's really going to help inspire you to continue on the path. Even when you're struggling, even when it seems like, wow, is this ever going to take off? Is anybody ever going to know about what I'm doing? Yes, they will. And find other people who want to promote you too.
0: Mm, thanks Dr. Viviana. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, Dr. Viviana Coles. For more info on Dr. Viviana, follow her at Dr. Viviana on Instagram and check out her book and take that quiz that I referenced on the show, The Four Intimacy Styles. You can learn more about it on her website, drviviana.com. Thank you so much to Unleash producer Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thank you to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow Unleash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also, tag Dr. Viviana at Dr. Viviana so she can share too. My wish for you this week is that you embrace all the love in your life, whether it be self-love, partnership love, physical love, or love of your craft. It's all worthwhile and all part of what makes you, you. And of course, remember that I love you and I believe
1: in you and I'll talk with you next week. Bye.